1: you're listening to the archaeology podcast network you're listening to tea break time travel where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host Matilda Siebrecht and today I am savouring a chai latte. It's a bit later in the day in this recording and I needed something warm and snuggly, so went for a chai latte. And joining me on my break today is Dr. James Dilly from Ancient Craft. And are you also on tea? As we are recording in the evening, I wouldn't judge you if you were on something else. Well, I, I've, I've sort of finished my outside work day. So uh, after
2: a, a tough day of Breaking Rock and Pouring Bronze, I've gone for a truly Neolithic beverage in the form of a beer.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Even better. I assume not a warm beer, though.
2: Uh, no, no. no. But, it is, uh, but it's not It's not chilled. It's, it's room temperature, as all ales should be. <laughs>
1: oh, no. Now we're getting... Oh, gosh, I'm going to have so many uh, <laughs> nails about this <laughs> when we go out. I must admit, I lived in Australia for a while, and there... It's pretty standard to chill your beer quite extensively. And I can remember my father going, What?
2: what is this? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, for, for ciders and lagers and certain types of beer, yeah, they are meant to be chilled. But if it's a proper ale, it's got to be, it can be slightly cool as if it would be in a cellar cool, not, not fridge cold. But I guess we're getting quite off topic, really.
1: <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I'm always curious what different people like. We've had people with coffee, we've had people who don't even like drink hot drinks at all. So all sorts on here. This is our first beer, though. So that's quite exciting. Great. Well, thank you for joining me. And I always like to give a little bit of an introduction to our guests, find out exactly how they got to where they are, because so many people ask me, oh, but how, how do you become an archaeologist? Or what did you have to do to do, be an archaeologist or do what it is that you do? And so far, all of my guests have said something completely different to each other. But I am curious, are you of the school of, oh, I've been interested in archaeology since I was born, or more the ones who arrived to it later in life, shall we say?
2: I'm a early, early bird on the archaeology front. You could say from birth.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that sounds good. And always in terms of, of the kind of technology side of things, or was it more broad?
2: I think like many, many young people, I was always interested and enjoyed making things. One of those millions of kids that really and still love playing with Lego Anytime we have younger family over and the Lego comes out, I'm as keen to get involved as they are. (laughs) And yeah, we're just making all sorts of stuff like a lot of kids do. And doing history in school as part of primary school, becoming interested in the Romans and the greeks and the egyptians and specifically mummies because kids are morbid and they love bodies and
0: true
2: true <laughs> yeah, I, I was just one of those many kids that loved the masterpiece the mummy with brendan fraser oh and Rachel that Rice. is, that is truly cinematic masterpiece perfect <laughs> yeah that was my idea of archaeology that you'd go out and smash through Slide tombs and, mummy? <laughs> yeah of course and gun down mummies and uh, you know that 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 sold it for me as a quite young kid. and I think I had my most mature thought, you know, maybe aged about seven or so, that I haven't really been able to top, which might say something even to this <laughs> day, that you watch all these documentaries oh, away from the films, of course, these actual documentaries mm. of the likes of Dr. Zahi Huas opening yet another tomb of a high-ranking Egyptian official from the upper dynasty or something like that mm-hmm. and quite rightly it would be egyptians officials usually or archaeologists that would be opening these tombs and it, it would be their project um, and the age of english gentlemen going over to various parts of the world and opening tombs and bringing artifacts back for a baying victorian crowd to be locked away in the dusty museum have quite rightly long gone although we're still living in that legacy yeah (laughs) i was about to say Uh, oh this is (laughs) Yeah, we won't go into that but
1: (laughs) oh it's something that i think needs to be said though because indeed i think a lot of people do get their impression of archaeology from watching these you know it belongs in a museum uh kind of films and that is definitely a very different sort of archaeology to well maybe not to what is currently done but to what should be done at least
2: yeah and i guess For whatever you think of the likes of Time Team it might not be exactly how archaeology is done but it provides a root way and an interest net to capture inquisitive young minds including mine Mm. and became interested in making things in archaeology or connected to archaeology and I seem to remember watching someone on TV doing flint napping as part of a documentary and in the usual TV magic just made it look so easy it just Mm. Mm -hmm. In a few moments, turning over and hitting a piece of flint, there was this beautiful hand axe that came out the (laughs) other side. And I was part of the Young Archaeologist Club that we still have in the UK. And back then, they used to do holidays around the UK to different places and each of those different places had different themes so kids could go up and live on one of the forts at Hadrian's Wall and live like a Roman soldier they could be oh, cool. part of an excavation at a medieval cemetery or the one that I really loved was the prehistory week that was down in Cornwall on Bodmin Moor a place called <laughs> True Eartha Farm and you did a lot of experimental archaeology. You visited some of the amazing prehistoric monuments on Dartmoor or Bodmin Moor, and I kept going year after year because it was just absolutely great having to go flint knapping or metalworking or bone working and seeing these amazing things. And the leaders of that holiday were just so inspirational and so amazing that it it was that that I guess I wanted to do not not just the flint knapping, but I guess showing how some of these crafts fit into archaeology and how they can be used as a tool quite literally to engage people. Yeah. So straight after the holiday, after having a little go at flint napping, came straight back and living in North Hertfordshire, we have flint everywhere. It's just in the field, you can go for a walk and quite easily come back with quite a quantity of large pieces of flint if Ooh, yeah. your backpack and your back will indeed take it on board, <laughs> which it has suffered through many times. But I had the raw material all around and was able to have a go. And I guess in what you'd expect for that sort of film drama sense. I picked up my first piece of flint and hit it a few times and it fell apart into a beautiful hand axe with just a, a matter of moments. Uh, and and that would be the case if I lived in a film or a game. But in fact, <laughs> the flint, being flint, just did not flake. It just sort of crushed and chunked and fell to mm. bits because I just wasn't working it in the right way. But for some some reason, I just carried on having a go not consistently not for sort of hours on end but we'd just have another go uh, occasionally sort of age 9 or 10 you know you get interested in other stuff yeah. and uh, just kept coming back to it and this carried on through school and about age I think it must have been about 16 my dad helped me make a website to showcase my growing early juvenile level skills into the likes of Flintnapping, which i can remember the evening that we decided the name that was ancient craft and so so it was born uh, i think it was 2009
1: That's amazing. I didn't realize it was such an early thing that, you know, it was from such an early age.
2: And uh, yeah, it just grew from there. And a website that was sort of displaying a hobby with a few pictures, uh, which looking looking back on some of them are more embarrassing than others. And the (laughs) end up on social media, not not from me, because some charitable person thinks it'd be a good idea to post uh, something (laughs) to embarrass me. But uh, (laughs) there we go. Yeah, it's changed a great deal and I've changed. And I went to university with, certainly with the flintknapping, these really quite growing skills and had already been asked to demonstrate and make replicas for a whole number of museums. Mm. And remember distinctly going for my interview at Southampton from what I understand from other students, you had an object from archaeology, and part of the interview was to look and talk about this object as an archaeologist might. And uh-huh. some potential students got bits of pot, bits of bone, bits of wood, because Southampton has a real maritime mm, Yes. to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, very fortunately, I had a hand axe. And the person who was interviewing me, who was actually on my PhD Viva board, so was there at both (laughs) ends, was not expecting me to talk about how it was made, how long it would take to make, the tools that would use, what the raw (laughs) materials like, how the tool might fit into the daily life of these people, and was just like well i I was not expecting that you (laughs) will come here that's
1: fine they were probably thinking fantastic we have our you know lecturer for the ancient materials course now (laughs)
2: yeah yeah it was yeah but yeah so it's it's always been apart from the very early years When I I was encouraged into a practical world, but both by my parents and my grandfather, who was a cabinet maker and made missile Mm. boxes after the war, I don't have any archaeologists in the family or anyone connected to heritage, but there's always been that practical influence i guess
1: yeah oh amazing i did not realize that it was you were sort of flint napping from such an early age and uh, yeah that's really interesting well i i might ask you more about that later when uh, we talk more about your sort of experiences with these technologies for now the second question that i generally ask the guests is if you could travel back in time where would you go and why and i must say our last episode was with emma jones who is of course your partner at ancient craft and she very gleefully told me that she was happy to go before you because she thinks she may have stolen your answer (laughs)
2: yes yeah she did she ran upstairs to say oh I'm gonna nick your answer so I've (laughs) I've sort of had to think about an answer throughout the day and uh, it's an interesting one because how how do you find a time that you could go back and either just sit there and, and look at how people are moving around and doing something just for your personal interest um, because it's such a huge wide time period and there are certain parts of prehistory where there are the the way that some things were done i haven't fully understood yet but i think i would, would like to go back to a bronze age metal workers workshop or space Mm -hmm. Just to see how they're interacting with the space, how they're doing certain things, how they're interacting with other craftspeople, whether it be the charcoal maker, um, the potter making their molds or the crucibles, and just see how that network fits in, really. Or even to go back and see a Bronze Age gold worker finishing the Shropshire Buller or the mold cape. Although you'd have to be there for quite a long time to see it, it would be quite a special thing.
1: Yeah. I do love that. I think nearly all of the guests so far have have given a similar answer to you in terms of it's not necessarily to see like the coronation of this king or the, you know, this great battle or anything like that. It's just to witness how people indeed would have interacted with their environment and with other people back in time. I think that's, I mean, that's also why we get into archaeology, right? Because we're interested in the sort of everyday stories of people. Again, something very similar to the, uh, very different, I mean, to the sort of Hollywood depictions of of what archaeology is, which always is some sort of grand adventure um, it's uh, i guess smaller scale adventures in uh, in archaeology and reality
2: yeah I, I guess as you said we're we're, we're not going for the, the the big characters although they play a part in archaeology it's it's fine finding and trying to tell the stories of those people who for lack of history even if it is in a sto- historical time period or even before prehistory, they have just as an important story as everyone else.
1: Yeah, no, it would be uh, yeah, one day, one day. We, Ever and I was lamenting how, you know, apparently no one's invented a time machine because we would have found out by now. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well. But thank you very much uh, for joining me on my, well, tea break, drink break um, today. And before we look at today's object or object type, we will first journey back to the furthest, actually, that we've journeyed so far in this podcast. And I'm probably going to mispronounce this. The Achulian? Ashulian. You'll probably know better than me.
2: I've heard it pronounced in both ways. So, okay. uh, <laughs> it's a bit like Latin, I think, because no one really kn- knows how Latin was properly pronounced. So, and I'm sure so people from certain schools will scoff at people exactly. who pronounce their... Well, their, their I like to give them some, some
1: fuel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with the soft. All about uh, engagement. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so the, the Acheulean period, about 1.7 million years ago, so very far back, And at this time, the environment, of course, looks very, very different. Trees dominate the landscape. Huge animals roam through the clearings. And as we peruse the world around us, we happen to spot a figure crouched in the shade of a nearby bush. And it's hard to make out the details from this distance, but they seem to be naked. However, there is a light covering of fur across their entire body, although this appears to be growing thicker around the head from what we can see. We creep closer, but then, unfortunately, we step on a stick and the figure looks around in alarm. All we see is a prominent brow ridge, flat nose, jutting jawline, and then the figure vanishes into the bushes. But they have left something behind. Lying in the grass is a large piece of stone chipped and worked with a nearby hammerstone to create a roughly teardrop-shaped object. And this encounter with an early hominid, exactly which one is unclear, describes one of the earliest hand axes. But today we are not going to be limiting ourselves to hand axes because why make life easy? We're going to look at axes in general, and we'll get into the details soon. But first, as always, let's have a look at the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google Search Autofill. And I was amazed. I thought I was going to get loads of things for axes. Sometimes with some objects, I get a ridiculous amount of questions. Some of which are just bizarre, but actually there were very few. The majority of the things I looked up for ha- axes or hand axes were related, I guess, to some kind of video game where you have axes, and then people were asking of the benefits of axes versus swords when fighting Vikings or something like that. But I did find a couple <laughs> that seemed to be more relevant for our conversation. The first one is: What are hand axes used for?
2: Well, it's uh, it, it's a good question. I guess it is one of the big questions associated with hand axes, because there isn't just one form or shape or size of hand axe, you've mentioned the teardrop shape, but there are actually ovate hand axes, there are chordate hand axes, there are later flat-bottomed boucoupé hand axes. There are so many shapes and styles that are made of different materials that seem prevalent in different sites or different regions. And are all of those tools used for the same purpose? It's a very hard question to answer because it is such an extreme amount of time ago in the past. And trying to reconstruct a site from that time in the Paleolithic, the old Stone Age, is extremely difficult because your usual site from that time might be a gravel bed that was part of a river system, and all of those tools and flakes detached with that hammerstone and maybe even the hammerstone themselves have been rolled around and moved away from where they were first used and made. And all you've got is is a collection of flakes and finished tools that have been knocked around, and you've got to try and reconstruct that moment in time from those objects that have been moved around an awful lot, to avoid repeating myself. So it it (laughs) makes makes it very difficult for archaeologists to try and get any kind of grip on what life was like in the Paleolithic. But you do occasionally get sites where the archaeology, the stone tools, hasn't moved around a great deal. And although it's not 1.7 million years ago, it's still part of the Acheulean from southern Britain at a place called Boxgrove. And it's a site that's often looked at and referenced, but that's because the archaeology from around half a million years ago was in good condition. It hadn't moved around a lot. And it seems to be, I guess to paint the picture, a site that was in a tidal zone that was right up against remnant chalk cliffs from where it used to be, a raised platform at the sea, but now is almost a salt marsh flat, quite sandy sort of environment. Imagine little rivulets of water crisscrossing it with banks of grass that were resistant to salty water or saline conditions. And in that space, these early hominins were... Clearly coming back to possibly for access to water if there were freshwater streams, but certainly to come into contact with animals, whether they were hunting animals is hard to say or they probably were. But we have one site where a group of these humans came into contact with a horse and it was butchered very intensely to the extent that they were smashing the bones apart Mm. to actually get at the marrow, and for anyone that's squeamish, uh, apologise, but I, and I won't go into further to be details. Honest, if about... they're
1: squeamish, they shouldn't be listening to this podcast because yeah, we've definitely gone into I these
2: guess details. That's very true, <laughs> yeah, quite. But around that space, around the the remains of this horse that have been taken apart, people were making the tools necessary. To go through that dismemberment process, and that is where the hand axe comes in. And in this case, at Boxgrove, they were ovate hand axes. They were generally not much larger than your palm it or uh, even to the extent of your fingers sometimes so a a good range but quite an ergonomic shape a bit like a cutting disc to best describe it they were pulling pieces of flint out of these chalk cliffs and working them with a pebble and then refining them with an antler hammer to take very very sharp thinning flakes off and these scatters of flint, as well as the hand axes, and the bones were found in place and were so well preserved in place that in one position on the site, la- uh, layer 4C, there is actually oh. the triangle of flakes, the waist flakes or debitage that was detached from someone sitting, sharpening a hand axe, taking off those flakes. And that V shape is a position that shows the shadow of their legs where they were positioned as they were working the flakes because those flakes won't fall through their legs but they might hit their legs Uh and drop into a certain position and actually you can see where the larger flakes have gone over towards the right whereas when i've tried to reproduce this v-shaped scatter sitting on the ground and sharpen a hand axe the larger flakes have gone over towards the left hand side and i'm right handed so that perhaps tells you that the person half a million years ago resharpening a hand axe perhaps looking up to see the group working on this horse keeping a a keen eye around looking over their shoulder um, and prevent the likes of hyenas or other dangerous scavengers getting too close and would perhaps brandish a uh, pointed stick at them or a fire-hardened spear or threw stones at them with perhaps children running around splashing between the streams half a million years ago. They then stood up, walked back to the group, and either joined in or passed this freshly sharpened hand axe onto someone else. And once they'd butchered this horse, they would take the legs that they needed, the joints, and would then perhaps move on to somewhere else. And that's the scatter we've got left behind from half a million years ago.
1: Then we have invented the time machine. That's, I mean, That sounds as close as we're going to get, really.
2: But that that is one of those rare occasions where we can paint such a vivid picture with, with fairly solid evidence. I wish I could do that for every site of that mm-hmm. age, but we just can't.
1: Oh, yeah, oh no, but that's fantastic. And do we have a clue of kind of who uh, or you know so we mentioned we've been mentioning early hominids. who was it who actually invented the hand axe, which kind of species and yeah, time?
2: Yeah, um, who invented the hand axe? Well, we unfortunately won't know their name. <laughs> Bob, or, I think it was Bob, right? Yes, yeah, yeah but, but Bob, <laughs> Bob and his hand axe. but we certainly know it was one of the early hominin groups a member of the genus homo but the earliest hand axes appear just under two million years ago it may have been homo habilis it may have been homo erectus the problem is and a bit like boxgrove many of the other extremely early sites is that although you might be lucky enough to find those stone tools and perhaps even luckier to find those stone tools in a close proximity to where they were made and used to find human remains is extremely (laughs) rare. And certainly in those positions where people have gone through a butchery process at Boxgrove, A tibia and two teeth were found, but still not enough to clearly identify which hominin it was. It could have been Homo heidelbergensis, it could have been Homo antecessor, it could have even been another hominin, but we just don't know. Without that skull in good condition, even fragmentary, but with most of the bits to show those distinctive features, we just can't tell.
1: Such a shame. So we do still need a time machine. Unfortunately, (laughs) there's only so
2: much I can do. (laughs) No, we we just know, and I guess that's the if even if you look much further forward in prehistory, and I know I mentioned that the bronze castle metal workers workshop which is you know th- that time period is closer to today than the bronze Age is to the paleolithic that we were just mm. talking about yeah. which gives some sense of the extreme length of prehistory that yeah. to try and get any kind of grip on the specific details of this time is very difficult and i always try to get across the picture that prehistory is like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle take away 995 of those pieces and you're left with five bits and because you know sod's law you won't get an edge piece or a corner piece mm-hmm. to at least start you <laughs> off it would just be one of those awkward middle bits that doesn't show any anything particularly distinctive <laughs> but that thousand piece, puzzle that you're looking at from the box lid and thinking well how am I supposed to work with this I can see culture and language and vibrant colours and people interacting this is what prehistory should be and almost certainly what it is but I've only got these five bits and on those five bits I can see a few bits of broken stone maybe a bit of pot if we're later in prehistory or some bits of bone or maybe a post hole you've got to work quite strategically with those handful of pieces and it's only through things like experimental archaeology or other techniques in archaeology that we might get back one or two of those pieces. But that's still a tiny fraction that won't go anywhere near close to giving you any kind of idea of what that complete picture might have been. And that really can make it quite frustrating that there are many questions like who made the first hand axe or what were hand axes for all and every type used for that, we just won't know uniformly because we just lack the evidence. Oh, cool. Oh. Sorry.
1: No, no, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, why did I invite you on this one? Yeah, I know. know.
2: I'm I'm sitting squarely on the fence here, somewhat comfortably. (laughs) No, this is perfect.
1: This is what I want to communicate, to be honest, because I also try to communicate as much as possible the fact that there are many, many, many theories, and unfortunately, we can't know which one exactly is correct or not, and we probably never will know about all sorts of things. So, I think it's important for people to understand that to be able to get a sort of unbiased view of archaeological research and the kind of conclusions that are made therein i think yeah it's good to understand that those are just potentially one version of things a lot of the time yeah definitely and it's important to
2: say that because we i'm sure likewise get people saying well surely these were very intelligent people and you know with some basic engineering they could have made an a frame and they could have built a this and they could have done that a million years ago and they could have made boats and gone across here and you know built pyramids and all the rest of it and we they may have we just lack evidence and it's not as if we're trying to hide things from people you know if if they did that then great but we we need the evidence to say they yeah. did otherwise they could have had flying cars or you know could could have had all sorts <laughs> but if you don't have the evidence to prove that you you just can't really say anything definitively no. and the problem is even with those occasional sites let's say Boxgrove or, or another late site uh, or Must Farm for example from the late bronze age that's just a one window into a society that stretched over many thousands of miles and just because they might have done something in a certain style at this site it doesn't mean they did it elsewhere or even for proxy hunter gatherer groups for example i'm often quite sternly told when i suggest that it might have been the whole group of hunter gatherers that were involved in hunting that oh well it would have just been men who would have been Mm -hmm. hunting and we know this because there's this particular group in africa or somewhere in the world and it's only the men that are allowed to hunt Mm -hmm. you have to sort of turn around and explain well they that group that you mentioned they live a completely different climate different environment they live at a completely different time Yeah, you just can't use that as a proxy environment it it can be interesting but it's not a perfect proxy environment and that's why you have to be so cautious with Mm. archaeology whether it be the evidence in front of you evidence from elsewhere or the past theory must be looked at critically at all times
1: yes couldn't agree more I think my most used word is suggests (laughs) this suggests Suggests that rather than uh, it's always very nerve wracking to put something like this shows that or this proves that. And you're going, oh,
3: oh, no. (laughs) Hey, archaeology podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
1: So we know a little bit more about axes or hand axes, or well, what we know is that we don't really know much about them, (laughs) I suppose, is the uh, answer to that. Discussion, but perhaps we could talk a bit more about sort of other kinds of axes or sort of axe heads in general. So, for example, hand axes—you mentioned briefly—they're probably used alone in the hand. I mean, I guess that's why they're called hand axes. But when do we first start to see hafted axe heads appear?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the tale of the axe—sort of steal the uh, the title of the recent very good book. Sitting on my shelf, I didn't remind myself who authored it. Oh, I've just rearranged the library, and if I <laughs> tilt my head back, I could have seen it and said, oh, it was written by this person."
1: <laughs> That's why you should never clean up, or tidy, or rearrange, or sort okay, this. Can,
2: can we relay this this to Em? Because it's uh, <laughs> she, she does a very good job of keeping me the website, the social media in check. But uh, yeah, sometimes I'll come into the workshop and think where was that? (laughs) And the same could be said here. But anyway, so for the the earliest type of axe, I guess, and it's it's perhaps worth combating what a hand axe is. And as you Correctly say it's a tool that would probably be used in the hand, hence the name. So, is it really an axe? Would you use it for chopping wood? Well, probably Mm. not, because it would almost certainly do a huge amount of damage to your hand. Because (laughs) if you now go and look for a picture of a hand axe or via a search engine, or if you have one in your mind, or even lucky enough to have either a replica or a real one close to hand, unless it has the natural skin of the stone the cortex it might be flaked around the base and if you're holding that in your hand even with a piece of leather and start whacking it into a tree it will quite quickly start to do damage so they're not used for heavy duty hitting or crushing of any kind they're quite precise cutting tools and the modern equivalent is very much like a bread knife although it's not used for cutting meat it needs that saw in action to work and that allows you to clamp it quite tightly into your hand as long as it it doesn't have any sudden hard action into the back of your hand and it's just used for cutting it works very well it doesn't need to be wrapped in leather or have any kind of handle and a butcher's sort of long saw knife which is just like a a long bread knife is very much the same in its purpose. But that changes as we go far further forward in time, But uh, beyond even the upper Paleolithic, the, the time that modern humans came in. And we actually need to go to the Mesolithic, when we see the first kind of Hafted, and by hafted I mean fitted into a wooden handle, axe, the tronche axe. But there are other types of axes from elsewhere around the world. But these axes would have been used for felling trees and woodworking to make the likes of dugout canoes, bows, or, or other wooden implements. And they would be flaked, much like a hand axe, around the edge that you uh, do in the process of flint mapping. And they would have one final flake to provide a razor sharp edge again like some hand axes were in Boxgrove is one of those sites where the tronche flake was used as a final hit to provide a razor sharp edge but instead of being ovate or flat these pieces of flint were uh, i guess not uh, cylindrical would perhaps be a, a good definition uh-huh. sort of a long rectangle rather than ovate and flat and These axes would have been used for clearing areas of woodlands so that deer came in to start eating shoots and then provide cover around the outside for hunters to knock them over with either spears or darts or bows and arrows. Uh, And wood would be needed for log boats uh, and a whole variety of other structures, including shelters. But perhaps the iconic stone axe actually comes from the neolithic the polished stone axe head nice. uh, that would could be made from flint but could be made from a variety of other materials and that would be usually flaked or pecked instead of flint napping, this is where you're taking a pebble usually fairly close to the axe shape, and then just hitting it with another pebble, breaking off and crushing tiny areas on the surface to slowly form it into the shape. It takes a long time. It's hard wearing on the hands. And then grind it to give it a consistent cutting edge and a smooth surface that would then be fitted into a wooden handle or something like ash wood or fruit wood or birch. And it's that axe that would have been used in the early Neolithic for clearing huge areas of woodland to open up for these new people with their new ideas of agriculture and building longhouses that needed all of that space and all of that timber.
1: Which I always find interesting when people sort of say, oh, we need to live like what, you know, with nature, like they did in prehistory. And I'm there thinking, Ooh. You do realize how much woodland people in the Neolithic cleared, like when they were going around their daily business.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit like the paleo diet. That's uh, oh yes, this is definitely how they ate in the Paleolithic. Mm. No,
1: <laughs> not really. <It's> not. <laughs> but so. Uh, the idea is then that sort of stone axes or hafted axe heads indeed came about more in relation with woodworking and with, yeah, built, like you say, clearing and building these long, long houses, etc. Do you have, and I'm only saying this because like I say, when I did all my Google search autofill checks, there were so many things coming up about war hammers and war axes, battle axes and all of this kind of thing. Do you think that stone axes may have been used as weapons? I guess this is something that people also sometimes consider, or is it something that is less likely? To answer simply yes,
2: <laughs> I do have actual examples of individuals that were killed with stone axes, In <laughs> uh, including the early Neolithic. And the thing to remember about the, the, the Stone Age is that It's only up until we get to the Neolithic that there seems to be exceedingly limited evidence of violence. You get the occasional bit of evidence that could arguably be an accident or just two people having a bit of a scuffle and it gets out of hand, but it's pretty rare. By the time you get to the Neolithic with these new people with their new ideas and their need for flint axes or stone axes to clear areas of woodland, the chance of being killed violently... Goes up to about 33%, regardless of your age or sex. And long barrows or burial tombs from the early Neolithic are often filled with the bones of people that have been on the end of blunt force trauma or even been hit by stone-tipped arrows. Our chance of being killed violently today around the world, including countries that are unfortunately in an unstable situation with those that are fortunate to be in a far more stable situation, is only 3%. So... From 3% today oh. to 33% in the early Neolithic in Britain. Gosh. That is quite dramatic. Yeah. The early Neolithic was an extremely brutal time to live. Why people were being killed, whether it was fights, skirmishes, ritualized killings, is we just don't know. But it, it clearly was quite a violent time and people were on the ends of probably clubs and... Axes, arrows—you name it. Tools that could be used for woodworking, hunting, could equally be used for injuring and even killing people.
1: Huh. And I guess, indeed, I can remember. I think I actually chatted about this briefly with Emma. The in the Neolithic, especially from what I remember from my days of uh, undergraduate archaeology and looking at death and burial in the past and everything, that's almost when you see the the weirdest kind of burials as well. Like you say, so people who have been dismembered or had some sort of violent blood force trauma, but then were buried on swan wings or something like that. There's, there seems to be a very wide and weird variety of burial rites as well.
2: Yeah, and I guess it's going back to trying to work out how and why people did certain things in the past Mm -hmm. um and uh, for you know the the example mentioned the vadbeck swan burial is an amazing unusual example of clearly a mother and child that were buried with a great deal of care that shows that people clearly had very close relationships and and loved family members or friends to a a great degree and you even see that back far further in time to our Neanderthal cousins from uh, the often referenced Shanidar cave with the the old man of Shanidar with the uh, serious injuries that would have made it very difficult for him to hunt or obtain his own food so it was clearly looked after but at the same time you equally see huge amounts of violence so Mm. how cheap life was I guess to, to not make it sound a bit too crass yeah. it is hard to gauge exactly but the severe increase of violence is a little troubling in Ooh. the neolithic and that doesn't really drop off too much unfortunately i, I guess that is a sad component of the coming modern world
1: indeed it all see it all started when we started clearing the trees we should have just left the trees where they were the gods were unhappy apparently yeah. <laughs> That's that's definitely the solution, right? That's the, uh, the yeah, back to the, the paleo to diet, women.
2: living in the trees, exactly. No land yeah, grabbing. Exactly. It's Perfect. yeah, that, that seems to have been <laughs> the catalyst. Is when people yeah. started land grabbing <laughs> and protecting resources.
1: Industry started, you know, with the production of tools. Anyway, if we sort of progress a little further in time, so we've talked about the different kinds of of stone axes that you can have. There was the flint axes, the polished axes, etc. And then. Obviously, at some point, the good old Bronze Age appears, you know, suddenly like that. Uh, That's definitely how it happened. And uh, we obviously start to then see bronze axes. But I can imagine they are quite different, at least the ones that I have seen in style. Or do you see, for example, at the start of the Bronze Age, people almost replicating these stone axe head shapes first before they then progress to the kind of what we would typically see as a a bronze axe head
2: you do to some extent and i guess it's interesting to see that gentle transition because i'm often asked well how how do they come up with you know you don't just get lumps of metal or bronze lying around Uh. and that's true you don't get lumps of bronze lying around because it is an alloy it requires two materials to come together but the Bronze Age didn't start with bronze. It actually started with copper and gold. And although gold wasn't often made into tools, copper certainly was. And sometimes the Copper Age is just bolted onto the start of the Bronze Age, whereas elsewhere around the world, the Copper Age or the Chalcolithic mm. actually has its own defined time period. And if you've ever worked with copper wire or copper piping you'll know that copper is reasonably soft but it's quite hard to break without serious manipulation and even then it will usually be quite a thin piece of copper like wire or the walls of a copper pipe. If you start to try and break a piece of copper that's any thicker than about five mil it actually becomes very difficult it's a very flexible material so to make something like an axe head out of copper it might not have the same hardness as stone but it's certainly nowhere near as brittle as Mm. stone because stone axes even polished axes can break with a misplaced strike copper axes won't so that means that you can make a much thinner cutting edge so it will actually bite into wood far deeper and for those earliest copper tools and copper axes, they probably were made from a naturally occurring copper metal that's known as native copper in the same way that gold can occur naturally as, a, as gold metal, native gold. And it would be that kind of gold that gold panners would uh, come across, then often be taken out by bandits and raiders with <laughs> uh, gold nuggets from the nearby stream. But with that naturally occurring native copper, for societies and groups that would have been very used to manipulating a material through percussion from that stone tool heritage, hitting this unusual, slightly shiny material in native copper wouldn't have been particularly unusual to them. And actually, as soon as they started to hit it, they would have realized that as you deform a metal today, it starts to warm up and get hot. Not ridiculously so but even to the extent it becomes uncomfortable to hold and Mm -hmm. again these would have been people who would have been familiar with changing the material properties through heat whether it be clay to ceramic or even heat treating flint to make it easier to work so both through hitting native copper into a rough shape or even heating it in a fire to make it easier to hit and with a bit more heat and a bit more heat and a bit more heat it becomes even easier to forge and work And with a little bit more heat and even a bit more instead of it being a a hot solid thing it actually melts and at that point rather than forging it you're melting it And you can melt it into a fairly basic open mold, like an ice cube tray for a flat axe head. And at that point, you're starting to change from direct manipulation to a slightly more complex process that you're taking something and and really changing the material properties of it to a cast Object, and that allows you to make more complex shapes. But even with those native or eventually cast copper objects, you have the copper metal, importantly. And whether it be your copper pipes in your home, or your copper axe head over 4000 years ago with use, or perhaps someone left a tool outside or in a wet place, they would have noticed that the surface would have started to go a bit green, as that copper starts to take on oxygen from the atmosphere and effectively oxidise and try and turn back into an ore. And people would have noticed that that funny workable copper metal that's going a bit green is—it's interesting because there are rocks from that place that, where we got native copper that are also green and unusually heavy. And I wonder if we try and hit them or try and heat them up to the same temperature that the copper melted, I wonder if we could get some copper metal out of that funny green rock. And at that point, you've changed from forging that native copper to smelting it. And that is the huge technological leap that we still rely on today. So rather than a lucky piece of copper metal being in a pottery furnace or some other unlikely process of people discovering metal. It's a far more gradual process of discovering metalworking and smelting built upon previous tool production heritage and once you've got copper um, which is soft but useful at some point with that metalworking and prospecting experience and heritage either accidentally came across tin as they were trying to go for a copper or and perhaps tried to smelt something like paratacamite which has copper and tin in it naturally or mm. they just came across a piece of tin ore for cassiterite, which can be extremely heavy, they would have known, almost certainly, well, this, a bit like the copper ore, is unusually heavy. I wonder if copper or perhaps some either other useful metal could come out of this and would have come across tin. And with that experimentation, a small amount of tin would have changed that soft copper into a hard alloy that we know as bronze. And the beauty of bronze is that... As I said, it's harder and it can be cast into higher definition, more complex moulds rather than fairly basic open moulds. And alongside that, metalwork started to develop from the flat axe into the flanged axe to the palstave axe and eventually the socketed axe. And then soon after that, the Iron Age appeared and everything got a bit boring and modern. LAUGHTER
1: Spoken like a true lover of prehistory. <laughs> yes,
2: indeed. Uh, the Stone Age and the Bronze Age specifically. When coinage starts to come in, I mean, it's just... Uh, you, you gets
1: know, too easy. All those modern problems. <laughs> that was, I think, yeah, the best description I've heard of the possible way that metalworking and metallurgy started. I I have to say that whole concept, the sort of origins of metallurgy and how we first see it emerge was the reason that I got involved with artifacts, uh, material culture studies. And now I'm more specialized in artifact analysis side of things. And I've gone in a very different direction. And I'm now looking at bone needles, but (laughs) it's always something that really fascinated me. Indeed, that idea of kind of how these technological innovations first took place. And I think that Yeah, I just have to say bravo. That was a really fantastic description of how a possible way yeah could could have occurred in terms of going from stone to metal, for example. So uh, thank you for that.
2: That's all right. (laughs) It's it's a possible way. Uh, That's the key thing to remember. Not necessarily the way, but it it seems the most reasonable to me. And I guess with with lack of evidence, we we know that people did this. Clearly a process was out there and trying to work out either the simplest, and if they did it in a more complex way, well, bravo to them until we have the evidence, or the most logical way is really what we work off until that changes.
1: Yeah, yeah. indeed, as we were saying earlier as well, there's, you know, many, many theories, and no one knows which one's the correct one. But personally, I think that that description was fantastic. So (laughs) Thank you very much. And then as you say, it, it continues goes to the Iron Age, we get iron and steel. And then, yeah, the the modern axe is born at some point as well. But of course, they're still around today. I mean, the axe is a pretty standard tool to have in, I think, any home. I think, well, I mean, maybe not any home. I've spoken like an archaeologist who just has random tools around the house. Um, I would assume that it's one of those sort of relatively standard items. It wouldn't be weird to have an axe in your house, put it that way, especially if you're living in maybe more rural areas and do a lot of wood working or, you know, wood chopping for fires, etc. And but why do you think that axes then is such a, a long lasting tool? I mean they've been around then for, yeah, two million years um, nearly. That seems to be something that definitely we've stuck with it, I guess, because it works so well, or or what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I, I guess it's whether you want to make a distinction between the hand axe and the woodworking tool, because they are they are separate things. Hand axes may well have been used for light woodworking, and certainly later hand axes show possibilities for Neanderthal use for, for woodworking, just in the hand. But yes, I guess the axe, as the hafted axe for felling trees and woodworking, has had a dramatic impact on us as humans in later prehistory for changing us from groups or societies that would have been hunter-gatherers that would have moved seasonally to a different campsite to exploit different resources as they replenished or whether when they became available at certain times of year to groups that would have been based in one area for longer, not necessarily permanently settled, but would certainly need to invest more time into caring and turning and planting and sowing seeds and crops into land or or building larger houses and and building bigger populations. I guess the question is, was the axe a catalyst for this or or was it a, a tool, a component that allowed the process to happen in the first place. And I guess it's, it's something that could be argued over to the nth degree, but it, it certainly is a, a major part of Neolithic society, whether you look at the shape of long barrows uh, from a bird's eye view that look like an axe head laying on the ground, or some of the huge standing stones that look a bit like an axe Head that's had its blade planted into the ground, so the axe head is standing tall. Or even as we go into the Bronze Age and we actually see the artwork of axes pecked into the sides of tombs, or even at places like Stonehenge, or for axes uh, elsewhere in artwork from places like Scandinavia, uh, or very stylized axes or oversized axes, right up until the modern day, where axes are still used for woodworking. They're they're often the carpenters or green woodworkers tool, but you look at flags or symbols or um, even, I guess, symbols of governance, that the, the axe plays a role in society far beyond a simple woodworking tool, even today with very strong Neolithic roots to have a blade fixed into a handle. And although it might not be fixed in the same way with the wood around the blade or with a stone blade, that idea certainly started in excess of 8,000 years ago in the Mesolithic and really flourished in the Neolithic with the arrival of farming.
1: Well, if that doesn't highlight the importance of technology to human development, I don't know what does.
2: <laughs> I'm just just selling axes here, how wonderful. <laughs> I
1: was Everyone about to say, so how much? How <laughs> Okay, so we did already introduce how you started into archaeology, how ancient craft came about uh, in the first section of this episode, but maybe we can go into a little more detail about your own experiences indeed with technology and how the axe, which as we know now is one of the most important objects in human history, uh, is uh, so important in your life potentially as well. So you mentioned already you had a lot of experience with stone napping already just from your own kind of interest when you were younger did you also do for example metalworking, bronze casting did that come later
2: Uh, it came a little bit later because when you're i guess 11 or 12 the idea of me going out into the garden and heating up some metal to well over a thousand degrees was uh, (laughs) perhaps a little just a little bit out of my reach uh, for a young age but it, it came came slightly later but I guess my core craft, if you excuse the pun, is flintknapping. Ha ha ha. Uh, yes, I know. Good, there, aren't, <laughs> uh, there aren't many jokes in flintknapping. You, you have to work them quite hard.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's a good account called, I think they're called Prehysterical or something on yeah. Instagram. And they do a lot of cartoons focusing on flint blades and things. And the puns are fantastic
2: yes Yeah. I, I think it's the one with sort of an exhausted core is one of the <laughs> well known ones it's, uh, yeah I, I can totally totally relate to that kind of humour it, it's when I'm doing a public demonstration and you'll make one of these rare jokes and occasionally they'll get it or they'll sort of look at you blankly <laughs> and it, which is made even worse when you say if you excuse the pun and they're sort of like uh, there was a pun there was a pun <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, well. That's uh, a good joke if you have to explain it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so now you have, I mean, the amount of replicas that you're making as part of Ancient Craft is astounding in the sort of range of different materials being used. Do you have a preference? So, I mean, it seems like stone napping, like you say, is the core <laughs> craft, but is that still your favorite, or uh, are there other ones that have have grabbed your interest
2: i get asked that question a lot do i prefer flint or bronze casting and to to tell the honest truth with this well rehearsed answer it it (laughs) depends on on which material is behaving best if i have a bad day flint napping i prefer bronze casting or vice versa
1: I've heard, isn't there a well-known phrase, a good workman never blames the, the tools? Or the no, no, <laughs> the I wouldn't blame the tools, but I can blame the material. <laughs> that actually was one of the things that made me feel slightly better about myself whenever I try to do napping. I'm terrible at it because I'm very impatient and I just, yeah, I, I don't like... Technologies that require me to plan things that much in advance and understand that much when things go wrong, but one of my attempted teachers I've tried many different times did say to me, "Sometimes you just have a bad bit of flint, and it, you know you should just put it aside, get another one, and start again."
2: Yeah, and that's that's very true. And I guess talking about experiences, I've I've taught a, an awful lot flint mapping workshops, as I'm sure you can guess, with, with probably <laughs> hundreds of people, but. Over the the unprecedented times of COVID and, and the lockdowns that we had here in the UK, mm. people had time on their hands at home. And although we were lucky enough to be in a situation where we could still fulfill orders and send them out in the post because people just wanted to buy stuff while they were at home, with a lot of museums in, in fairly uncertain times for footfall, we thought, well, perhaps we could make a, a an online flint napping tutorial uh, and for any proceeds that people wanted to donate for our time or for anything else that we could sort of direct them to various uh, museums or, or worthy causes so I came up with the idea of perhaps just doing a a live flint napping tutorial on twitter and you know maybe 20 30 people might watch it if we were lucky <laughs> and and so co- called it hashtag nap time very original
1: i uh, love that
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we sat down, phone propped up against a, a, another piece of flint, and I, I sat there with my rock, and then became aware quite quickly that fourteen thousand people had tried to uh, start watching this process unfold em and uh, my sister heidi that were just watching the phone on the screen that i couldn't see just to make sure everything was all in order the the expression on their face and the widening of eyes suggested that rather than something going wrong it's perhaps the the large number of people that were tuning in to watch me bashing a rock and try and uh, do it for themselves, and it was amazing to see afterwards the pictures people were showing of the setup, everything ready, all their pebbles they'd collected because we'd given Aww. a little bit of notice. But uh, people from all around the world, uh, friends, family, even that they had a go at napping in the garden, and it was possibly a moment that I don't know whether across the world, but certainly over a very wide area. There was possibly the most amount of flint knapping ha- happening within that hour since prehistory. <laughs> it, it was a special moment, I guess, from quite unusual times. I won't say unprecedented again because it gets used quite so much, even now. <laughs> but it—it it was great to change my style of teaching and challenge me to be able to teach a very difficult process. As you've outlined, it is very hard and, and I wasn't naturally good. Very few people are naturally good and I, I still struggle with it. it, it certainly the Flint doesn't want to behave, but these days and since then I, I've realized that the, the key to teaching something like Flint mapping is to set realistic goals from the off and to really set the expectation with people that might have a grand ideas of coming along to just a day or even a few hours flintknapping and hoping to go away at the end with a beautiful hand axe or a dagger or a spearhead and to really set those expectations where they should be and absolutely sort of crush their dreams (laughs) in front of them as we
1: should i mean that's what education is right
2: (laughs) Um, uh, for people that have been on my workshops they they will have got used to my somewhat dry sense of humor quite quickly so can verge (laughs) on the cruel sometimes but it's all in good spirits but the, the key is to rather than have people worry about what tool am I making what should it look like is this the right shape to take away all of that stress and actually just worry about the process and that's Mm. how I started well here's a piece of flint all I want you to worry about is taking off flakes I'll show you the process for me doing it. I'll draw it out for you and I'll show me doing it I will direct you in your hands do it and now you're going to do it and the first few flakes might be a bit hit and miss quite literally but after just a few minutes people start to get the hang of just taking flakes off because that's all they're worrying about they're not worrying about oh, is this a tool is this or this is it a that they're just taking flakes off and if i had my way people would do that all day just taking flakes (laughs) off because that's all flint napping is just taking flakes off and then you start to add some of the other components in taking off certain flakes or longer flakes or thinner flakes and then you can start to look at how you can turn some of those flakes into tools like scrapers or saws or burins even and then perhaps apply some of those skills that have started with the basic and the macro and then down to the refined and the micro to something more complex like a biface or, or a two-face tool or perhaps even a hand axe because then you've built up that foundation that gentle slope of learning rather than giving people a stone and expecting them to, to turn it into a tool straight away because it's unrealistic it, it's setting off that gentle ramp that curve of learning and i've Almost always found that if you strip away the difficulty and the complexity, and uh, you know if, if there's some past experience in that frustration, that actually most people can get flint nap in and it might look as if it's a test of strength and it's not and and certainly if any any of you have watched nap time on youtube on the ancient craft channel it might look initially that when i'm breaking open a large flint or even going through the process with an antler hammer that it's a test of strength and it's not to really i guess think of uh, something else rather than being able to hit something hard Uh, if you can knock a six inch nail into a piece of wood and you can do it within a a few hits uh, without hitting the piece of wood either side you can do flintknapping because it's not the ability to hit the nail into a piece of wood with one hit like karate kid it's the ability to hit the head accurately consistently over many occasions that flintknapping is a test of accuracy and understanding the process, rather than strength and brute force, and that's why pretty much anyone can do flint napping if you're able to hold flint and hold hammerstone. And in fact, over the years, I've found teaching people of different ages from different backgrounds, all sorts, that actually, on the whole, females are much better at taking on what i'm trying to get across to them because on the whole blokes just want to bash rocks and i understand that i mean you said it not me um, we've all been there when you just want to hit something and well if it won't work i'll just hit it harder and there there are similarities that you see elsewhere well if you know if you don't understand me speaking english slowly and loudly Mm -hmm. i'll just speak it louder (laughs) Um, and they're similar similar from elsewhere but on the whole, if you're able to accept that it is a difficult process and you set yourself reasonable goals and steps that if, if I can take these flakes off and there may be problems along the way, but I will get there and have that determination to get be able to get over those problems and give it the right amount of time for your brain to able to understand the process. Because there will be difficult parts of flint napping, whether it be how to thin down something, how to take off flakes in a certain way, or set up blade cores. That Light bulb moment will rarely happen as you're doing it. A bit like learning a guitar or, or an out of the box concept, you need to go through the process of learning a, a new rift or, or trying to hold your hand to produce a, a certain shape as you're making those sounds. And you'll go away, perhaps sleep on it, do something else, and, and it'll click because your brain has had that chance to catch up. over something that's quite difficult when you come back to it it will be a little more familiar and the possibilities of progressing further will be there Uh, and that uh, I guess is flintknapping it is that it is a very difficult process it has often been referenced particularly by me uh, as being one of the hardest crafts out there that uses a natural material because that natural material can be so inconsistent as you said it might just be a bad bit of flint on that day Mm. full of fossils cracks there can be all sorts of colors and resistances even bits from the same quarry two bits that are next to each other can be completely different but being yeah. able to work through them in the same way and face and get over those problems in the same way that people would have in the past it allows you to build up those skills those problem solving methods that people did many thousands of years ago
1: huh. and, and indeed i think your your point of that you have to learn kind of the almost the mechanics of it as in the, the muscle memory first, if that makes sense. So sort of get an idea of just what you actually have to do as a basic thing is applicable in everything, really. I mean, not even in, definitely in, in other kinds of art, but even it just made me think of, so I'm a swimmer and my main stroke always used to be butterfly. I haven't done that properly competitively for many, many, many years, but I went swimming the other day and I didn't let the butterfly and, it was that I still remember that moment when I was younger, indeed, when you just get the technique, like you suddenly find your rhythm and it's like, oh, this is how you do it. And this is how it it makes it possible to swim however many lengths of butterfly. But indeed, if you get in the pool and assume that, right, OK, I want to be able to swim 200 meters butterfly right now, you can't do that. You first have to learn the the general technique of it. And I mean, that sounds very similar indeed to what you're saying with the, uh, with the flint napping in terms of you just have to get the feel of it first almost, and and the understanding of that side of things, which uh, yeah, I find quite interesting. I'm also curious whether, because you mentioned indeed that the, I'm I'm going to go back to the stone napping versus bronze casting, but not in a slightly different way, because stone napping you experimented with a bit more when you were a child, whereas bronze casting came later. Was it then the case that the sort of approach or the way that you yeah. Yeah. Approach, I guess, is the best word for it. The way that you approach those two different materials. I mean, how long, for example, did it take you to get that technique when you were a child? Because I can imagine, like you mentioned, you're just, you're hitting it, you're expecting a flake to come off, but it's just kind of slightly denting the, the hammer or, or whatever. Whereas then I can imagine maybe if you came to bronze casting later in life, you already had that idea of, right, first I need to learn the technique or how, how did that differ?
2: Yeah, they are quite different processes. And I can remember some of the occasions quite early on trying to make certain tools. And I still have in a cabinet some of my very early attempts at stone tools, including very rough fl- flakes that have been bashed, including what I considered a hand axe, which actually, if you look back on it, would, would, is sort of the equivalent of a fairly rough Bronze Age core. But I was delighted with it at the time. And that came uh, uh, three or four years into the process of self-teaching, to, to give you some idea of the amount of time that it takes. And, and that that fairly crude I guess generously labelling it as a hand axe, um, <laughs> is a good reminder of the amount of time that it took to get to that stage and the determination involved. Whereas bronze casting, apart from perhaps the confidence to be able to pick a crucible f- f- that's glowing, bright orange, full of 1,000 degree or over a 1,000 de- degree liquid metal, the confidence of being able to pull it out and turn it in. In your wrists and pour the liquid metal accurately into the mold opening into the sprue gate. There, there is more certainly more knowledge based um, hmm. hand eye coordination or accuracy based. Whereas flint napping is certainly a balance between the two, uh, bronze casting is a lot more knowledge based. And there's certainly whether well, it be mold making from clay or. I guess, as I said, just pouring out a cruise. Well, there are some hand processes, accuracy involved, but it's certainly very knowledge heavy in comparison to flint flintknapping.
1: Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And as a sort of a final uh, question, what would your advice be or suggestions? I mean, you've made some fantastic suggestions yeah. so far for people who want to, for example, start flint napping by themselves, but specifically the work that sort of ancient craft does, Obviously, is multifaceted, but one of the kind of things at least that they're becoming very well known for is the, all the fantastic replicas that you guys make. And for people who might be interested in in something like that, so in, for example, trying to replicate, be it a prehistoric technology, a prehistoric object, what would your advice be to those people?
2: Well, I mean, to start off, that was quite a good pun with a multifaceted talking about flint knapping, hey. um, <laughs> just to highlight that because that, that was that was a good one. Um, but to how to get into a prehistoric craft, and I, I guess it's it's how you want to use it because we, we often get asked and get messages from various people asking, you know, oh, can I be an apprentice or can I come along and help as part of this process? And if we could say yes to all of them, we'd have a whole school and, and you know, I'm sure we would eventually need Ofsted to come and, uh, you know, keep everything in check that uh, we're teaching these people to be good flintnappers uh, or uh, competent bronze casters to fit into a modern world. But for how, how people today... Could pick up a craft, whatever it be, whether it be making pewter tokens for um, medieval traded goods, or for making uh, a medieval silk garments, or even bronze axes. I guess the key thing in the world of archaeology, if you feel that, like me or M, that you want to approach it from learning a craft that can be applied to research. And outreach to teach people, whether it be in person or through media, as we are, or even TV, knowing your subject is very important. Because what you're saying, however confidently you're getting it across, you are producing primary evidence or data through your experience or even as a personal communications perscom. And having a good grip of your time period is important because whether it be someone who's young or old, they will see you and hear you going through that process, uh, and will listen and will take on what you say. And you will often get some right curveball questions, whether it be <laughs> what were hand axes for, or who made the first hand axe. Was Sorry. it?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, being
2: able to answer those questions e- either in a, a an accurate way or even a deflective style. <laughs> comes down to both knowing the time period and practice, and uh, and I guess the 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 thing to sort of conclude now that I've really uh, over engineered the response um, <laughs> is to know your what your time period that the craft is in or know the craft do res- do your research, but learn learn the craft along the way because you, you you'll get bogged down and get bored of, of research and I do, but the two have to come together because the two components will support and strengthen each other and i'm still learning you know there's plenty that and each time i pick up and and read a new report of somewhere or a new book or or something like that you learn along the way and the problem certainly with prehistory is that it is such an enormous time period when we try to cover the paleolithic through to the end of the bronze age representatively on a timeline it's only about 99 point 8% of human tool use and archaeology on the earth. So we've we've sort of given ourselves perhaps a a too long a time period to try and cover but wouldn't really <laughs> want to leave anything out but will profess quite openly that there are parts of prehistory and crafts of prehistory that i'm certainly not even slightly proficient in or even slightly experienced because you can't do everything so find the niche whatever craft it is that interests you or even time period and get to know it comfortably and if you can find that craft that interests you whether it be flint knapping or spinning and practice frequently and just pre- be prepared to struggle occasionally it is part of the journey and being able to get over and through those problems will make it far easier later because you will have reinforced the troubleshooting solutions the, the roots away around those problems and it will be easier later, you'll be a far better teacher because you've gone through those steps.
1: Which I think is just a lovely metaphor for life in general as well. So I, guess, uh, I yeah. think any any suggestion for any facet of life, I would say, is, uh, is uh, fantastic. So that marks the end of our tea break today. Probably time to get back to work. I have a lot to catch up on. Many, many, many years of flintnapping experience to get under my belt before I can move past my, my frustrations. But thank you very, very much for joining me today, James. And yeah, taking us on a journey through so much of human history in such a lovely and succinct way. I very much appreciate you taking the time.
2: Nos problem, just keep napping, I guess. <laughs> with
1: a K, with a K, not with With
3: not a K, with, yeah. indeed, yeah.
1: <laughs> And if anyone wants to find out more about James's work, the work of ancient craft, the different kind of axes or other technologies we discussed today, check the show notes on the podcast homepage. I'll try to put up some nice links. I hope that you all enjoyed our journey today and see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel.
3: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Rachel Roden.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration Event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.